Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. So we are in the beginning the story of a megalomaniac, uh, Ahasuerus, who is a king of the Persians, and he is uh, having a party for 187 days to impress you with how powerful and uh, uh, how much pomp he has. At the end of 187 days, he calls for his wife, Vashti, to come out and uh, to impress people with her beauty. Now, here's something that you may not know from just the text of Esther. And you have to remember, why doesn't the scripture tell us everything we want to know? Because everything you want to know is pertinent to the gospel. But the truth of the matter is, Vashti is, according to Jewish history, a direct descendant of Belshazzar, who is a direct descendant of Darius the Mede who was a direct descendant of Cyrus the Great, on and on and on, back to the Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, And so it's odd to me that this Persian king is so proud of this Babylonian wife, beauty, trophy, treasure, because she's not only gorgeous, she's proof that we have dominion over everybody else. And she refuses And now Ahasuerus, Xerxes I, has to make a decision of how he's going to put her in her place. And so he decides that she's never going to be able to come into the throne room again. Probably ain't going to trust very well. He does not already not very trustworthy or uh, uh, trust giving. And, uh, and so she is now banished and uh, she is no longer the queen. And so these brilliant strategists tell him, you need to make sure that everyone in all of the empire knows that a wife cannot rebel against her husband. Because you know how those women are when they're given a little bit of permission. Now, if you should be laughing right now, or this is going to get a lot more tense as we go along. Now, the reason that this is so important is because you have to ask yourself the very questions that up until this point, this story is not about Esther. We don't know her. So try to remember, we're not talking about the story of Esther. We're looking through this on a timeline, right? So up to this point, this story is about Ahasuerus. And so he is, uh, you got to ask yourself, as, as uh, the 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 character of the story, what is the kingdom thinking about me right now? What does every other kingdom think about me right now? What am I thinking about myself right now? 187 days, well, yesterday I thought I was something. And now I don't have a clue who I am. Now, self-awareness is a very important thing. Ahasuerus doesn't have any right now. I have no idea what or who I am. Now, Esther chapter 2, verse 16, tells us just briefly, we'll look at it in a little bit, but it tells us that the chronology of Esther is very important. But one of the things we learn in Esther 2, 16 is there is four years that occurs between Esther chapter 1 and Esther chapter 2. 
So it's not just quickly, you know, next scene. Four years later, it's in these four years that immediately after Vashti said no, Ahasuerus says, how could I possibly exert my power? I know. I'm going to go after 12 years ago, my daddy tried to invade Greece, and it didn't work. And all of those Thebans and Thesbians and all of those Spartans and all of those Grecians stood up against us, and he got beat. But here's how I can prove that I'm the dominant one. I'm going to go beat him this time. Twelve years later, during this four-year period of time, he goes to Sparta, to Thermopylae, and that's if you've ever seen the movie 300. This actually happens between when Leon, King Leonidas stood with the 300, and this, by the way, that story is not historically accurate, but stood with those 300 guys. And you know what happens with Ahasuerus? He gets, he gets decidedly beaten over and over again. And finally, he gets to the point where he is so beaten, they start taking all of his naval ships away from him, these little ragtag bands of little small communities, He's afraid he's going to get hijacked and have to stay in Europe. He tucks tail with half of his army and goes back home. Two years later, the rest of his army is defeated and comes back home. And by the way, the Persian army doesn't last much longer. Why do I tell you that? It's because it's very important when you get to Esther chapter 2 to know the mindset of Xerxes. He was beaten by a woman because he wanted to prove that he had dominion over her. And in order to prove that he still had military prowess and power, he goes to war and he gets beaten again. And he comes back home and he's trying to pretend that he's somebody. Now, I say all of that to say, you know, quite, and this is, I don't mean any of this to be crass, but it is in the scripture and so we have to bring detail to it. He needs Something. He needs something that everybody needs, especially when there's depression and a lack of self-awareness. Man, Xerxes is lonely, and he is depressed, and he's weary, and he's beat. I need somebody to care about me. I'm lonely. I need somebody to love me unconditionally. And that is the craving. I don't care what kind of despot or tyrant a person is. They need to know that somebody cares about them. He has to be thinking that. Because when he gets back home, he's moping around the house. And all of his brilliant strategists say, well, let's just read it. This is in Esther chapter, one, or chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated. That's not just his anger from chapter 1. That's his anger about life, meaning that he went from fury to who am I? Because that's where anger always takes you. Who am I? What really matters? Listen to this. He remembered Vashti. You know what? I sure... Now, this was four years later. Here's what he's thinking to himself. Yeah, I remember I had it all. I sure wish Vashti was here. And I signed this stupid document that said she could never come back and that my stupid mouth couldn't be undone. 
He remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. He remembered what she did, but he's not angry anymore. He just remembers what he decreed that she could never come back. So all the young men came around the king and said, you know what? We can tell what you're feeling. You know what you need? You need a woman. In fact, you need, you need lots of women. And you need beautiful women. That'll do the trick. So why don't you send out to all of your officers all over the kingdom, all over the entire empire, and have them find all of the most beautiful young unmarried ladies and bring them to you. We'll clean them up. We'll do some extreme makeovers, and you can play the bachelor. This was the first season, by the way. So when you find the woman that pleases you, she can be your queen instead of Vashti. Now, listen, this shouldn't surprise anyone that the king is in favor of this plan. Yeah. All right, verse five, hard scene change. For the first time, we see, now there was a Jew in Susa, by the way, some translations say Shushan, which is the same city in history. Uh, it is the capital, the citadel of the Persian Empire. Now, notice the first thing that the author wants you to know about this certain man is that he is a, what's the first thing we know about him? He's a Jew in Persia, right? We don't know his name yet, but we find out later that his name is Mordecai and that he's from the tribe of Benjamin. His family was carried away. It actually gives us several generations of his genealogy, which will be very important in just a couple of in minutes. But his family was carried away in captivity when Nebuchadnezzar came and took them captive. If you remember in Daniel chapter 1, we have the story of that when uh, King Jeho uh, Jehoiakim was taken uh, by Nebuchadnezzar and, and all of the young men were taken. This is when Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego and all of those guys were taken in captivity. This is the same, this is the same time frame. Now that captivity, Daniel tells us, lasted 70 years. This, Esther, is 40 years after that. So this is 110 years later from Daniel chapter 1. Now, when you're reading the scripture, you will see that Daniel is on the right side of Esther, but chronologically, that is not so. She is about 110 years after his first taking. Now, it's very unlikely that Mordecai, because of Esther, it's very unlikely that Mordecai himself was taken. It's more likely that his father, probably his grandfather, was taken during that time. Now, Mordecai was a very common name, in Persia, it's not a Hebrew name, there's no fewer in history than four Mordecais that actually worked in the palace of Ahasuerus. Four of them named Mordecai. He's one of them. Most likely, and this is where we got to get a clear picture that the scripture is trying to paint. More than likely, Mordecai comes from the Persian god Marduk. In fact, it is a direct line directly from being named after one of the Persian gods to Mordecai. 
This is the name that Mordecai goes by. When you go over to Daniel chapter one, you'll see that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they get taken into Babylon at that time. Then they were taken over by the Medes and then ultimately the Persians. But during this time, Daniel is referred to not as Belteshazzar, which is his Babylonian name. He continues to be known as Daniel. But Mordecai, I don't even know what his Hebrew name is. kind of man is Mordecai? I think sometimes we give Mordecai the benefit of the doubt, but only because we want to, not because the scripture does. We'll get to more of that in just a moment. We don't know whether Mordecai's mom and dad called him Mordecai in honor of Marduk, or they called him some Hebrew name to honor their forefathers. We don't really know, and it matters Was Mordecai, although he was a Jew, was he raised by compromisers? Because 40 years ago, Darius said, you can go back home if you want, Jews. Rebuild your temple. In fact, here's all your stuff back and here's some more money. Anybody that wants to go back can go back. Nehemiah, Ezra, Isaiah. Not Mordecai's family. No, no. Kind of like Persia. I don't know why you would stay in Persia. Unless you were comfortable. I don't know. We don't know. Some Jews decided to return and rebuild. and They had difficulty, but the walls were being rebuilt and the temple was being rebuilt. But some families were too comfortable. And regardless of the reasons, Mordecai's family is there. They've grown comfortable. Every day, these Jews were faced with the question, how or can we keep our faith in God while we're trying to be successful in a culture that does not share our beliefs? How can we be comfortable in an uncomfortable pagan country? It's a question they had to ask themselves. And sadly, what I think ultimately happens is they come to the conclusion, we've got to adopt the values of the country that we're in because we're never going to be comfortable until we do. And it's a slow leak into compromise where one nation says, we so wish we could go back to Jerusalem and worship God in the temple to, well, it's good to know that we could if we wanted to. To, well, we'll just worship at home. To, our son's name is named after a false god. Just a few generations. How, how does, and I want you to, I hope that you can see the reason why we're in Esther. How does someone maintain their faith in a culture that doesn't trust or worship the true God? In verse 7, we find out that Mordecai is not living alone. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. What's the first thing the author wants you to know about Esther? What she looks like, yeah. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own 
daughter. He introduces Esther as a beautiful Jewish girl and gives us both of her names. Esther is the only character in the entire book that's introduced with two names. Most people believe that it's because there is a duplicity in Esther that you will see throughout the entire 10 chapters. And that is that Esther is one person with a foot in two worlds. Part of her is Hadassah, the Jewish woman who worships Yahweh. The other part of her is Esther, the beautiful young woman trying to make it in a world that only cares about appearances. But having heard about how beautiful Esther is, we should not be surprised when we come to verse 8 and realize that when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, when many young women were gathered in Susa, Esther also was taken into the king's palace. And that's a passive verb, which means that all of these things are happening upon her. She really didn't have an option. They were taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai. Who, was in, who had charge of the women. Now, I want to stop for a moment and, and just give you a little bit of info in that Hadassah in Hebrew, when you think of Queen Esther, I know what we think. When we, when we picture her in our mind, it's pretty clear to get a picture of what this beautiful Jewish girl looks like. But in Hebrew, her name is Myrtle. Isn't that great? Myrtle. Her name shall be Myrtle. It kind of paints a different picture, honestly. Am I wrong? Not, not to offend all of the myrtles. I'm not trying to be offensive. I'm just trying to put it into context. Here's the context. No less than three prophecies in the Old Testament tell us that when the children of Israel are going into the promised land, there's going to be lots of thorns and briars out there. And the Lord tells them if they will be faithful to keep his promises instead of briars growing he will produce, anybody want to guess? Myrtles. I believe Esther is an answer to prayer and prophecy. That instead of these Persian governments trying to afflict pain upon God's people, here's a myrtle growing in the briars. Isn't that beautiful? But she doesn't prefer Hadassah. She prefers Esther. Everybody sees her as Esther. Esther means the star. It's a derivative of the false god Ishtar. It's an odd name for a devout Jewish girl. And she is the star of our story, so it should be easy for us to remember. Esther's parents name her Hadassah. They die. I don't know when she gets the name Esther, but maybe the guy named after Marduk gave her a name so that she could fit in to this new culture that she's in. I don't know. The parents who encouraged her in her roots are now dead. And her compromising stay-behind cousin is in charge. I know there's, there's a lot of this, and, and it may be reading into, but I think the rest of Esther will prove 
the fact that this is the context of this story. In one moment, she's growing up in a Jewish home where she's free to worship God how she wants. In the next moment, she is stripped from that home and thrown into this pagan empire where the only hope of her survival, listen to this closely because this is the temptation, her only hope for survival is compromise. It's the only plan that works. I'm just going to go along with the world I live in. And that's exactly what she does. I'm just going to go along. I'm going to pretend. I'm going to keep my mouth shut, and I'm just going to get mine. Listen, she's not reluctant. Don't give her the benefit of the doubt. This girl is playing to win. Because as soon as she hits the throne room... It's on. And she starts winning favor. And, it's, and we'll, we'll look at that in a moment. So verse 9 says, And the young woman pleased him, that's Haggai, and won his favor. And so Esther wins this. Now listen, verse 10 tells us, Esther had not made known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not make it known. Listen, Esther, don't tell people you're Jewish just go along. But Mordecai, do you, know, do you not know what's going to happen over the next year to me? Doesn't matter. Just go along with the society that you're in. That's the only way we can make it, Esther. Just compromise, compromise, compromise. Just, just lay down and don't tell them who you really are. See, Esther's progress in one world came at a great cost in another. She completely suppressed her identity as a citizen of the kingdom of God and, and the, subtlety, the subtlety of the temptation that Esther gives into. She, she doesn't deny her faith. She doesn't talk about it. She never lies about who she is or what she believes. She just conceals it. You just wouldn't know it by looking at her or talking to her. Why? Because Mordecai's plan is better than God's plan. That's a hard pill to swallow. But, I mean, a hundred years ago, they were taken into captivity. A hundred years ago, they were scared for their lives. Their fathers and their grandfathers were all slaves in Babylon. I mean, it's just one thing after the other, right? We start seeing that. It's very clear. And, and at least Esther has her mom and dad, right? Oh, nope, they're taken from her too. You know what? Maybe God's a God we can't trust. Not one thing in the last few generations in our family's life has gone the way that God promises. So you know what we're going to do? No, we're just going to, we're just going to lay down and we're just going to get what's coming to us. We're just going to pretend that we're in the world. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, honestly, it's a hard spot. The way to win is to compromise. Verse 10 tells us that Mordecai, I love this little watchdog, walks in front of the palace every single day in front of the gate near the harem just to find out how Esther is doing. Just want to know. Just checking on you. You need anything? What can I do for you? Oh, thanks. What in the world is he going to do? Well, he might be able to beat 
Xerxes. I mean, everybody else does, but... He obviously believes if she's vocal about her faith, it'll put him in jeopardy and her in jeopardy. Probably get him killed. By the way, history tells us that Esther is competing with 400 other women. And as soon as she hits the palace, the guy that's in charge gives her the seven best women to groom her and prepare her. That's quick favor. That's a quick alliance that she made with Haggai. So the author decides to take a moment and explain the rules of the first season of this competition. So what happens is that each woman has to go through a one-year beautifying regimen to get ready for her one night with the king. One year implies that there's also diets and nutrition, internal things at working, refinement school, how to walk, how to talk, how to address. All of these things are a part of it. It's not just a matter of putting on makeup. It also gives the judge an opportunity to get an idea about temperament and personality and all of those sorts of things because here's what we're testing for, stubbornness. If I tell her to come, is she going to come? (laughs) Because I'm kind of scared she might not come. I want to make sure that one, at least one of these 400, if I say, hey, I want to impress all my friends with your beauty, that at least one of them would come when I say so. All right, back to the rules. When that special night comes a year from now for that young woman to have her one night with the king, She can bring whatever she wants to bring with her from the harem with her into the king's chamber. So in the evening she goes in and in the morning she leaves. And then she's transferred to a second harem where another eunuch is in charge of all of them. And if if the king ever wants to, you know, be with her again, he just calls her out by name and he knows which group of women she's in. For now, here's what you need to know. Esther is in. Game on. She's playing for keeps. She knows the rules and she decides to keep every one of them for her own advantage. She conceals her faith. She wins the favor of everyone is in charge. She starts making alliances with everyone that's on the inside and she is a shoe-in. In verse 15, the author tells us that Esther is winning. Look at verse 15 because I want you to help me with it. Esther is winning favor in the eyes of who? Who is she winning favor with? Everyone who saw her. You see the value? The value is you're for Esther because of how Esther looks. That's a Persian value, not a kingdom value. So Esther has embraced the values of the empire. When it's finally her turn to go into the king, she uses this favor to her advantage and she asks the man who's in charge of the harem, what what do you think I should take in? I mean, every other woman is making up their own mind and she wants to try to impress, but she goes to the guy in charge and says, what should I take in? And he tells her, I don't know what it is, but he knows the king. Brilliant. What will impress him? What What will get me in? What will make a difference? How will he remember me? Look at verse 17. In the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women 
And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Now, if I hadn't been sharing this with you and you had just been reading this, chances are you would say, we win, Esther wins, she's the queen. But the truth of the matter is, we don't win here. Oh, Esther wins to live another day. But this isn't a win for our faith. This is a compromise for our faith. Esther wins by concealing her faith, embracing the values of the pagan empire. And anybody that's a Jew might be able to say, ha, 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 a Jew's the queen of Persia. We win. What difference does it make if you're a Jew by blood? You're not a missionary to the world because the world doesn't know your faith. It doesn't see. All they can see is how you've compromised and how beautiful you are. Esther becomes exactly what the pagan king's king wants Esther to become. And does it surprise you that up until this moment, coming to the end of chapter 2, that not one character is expecting God to show up? There's no anticipation for a move of God. There's no, we will not bow to your God, O king. We will go to the fiery furnace before we do that. There, there is no, we will pray and hear God on this matter before we act. There is no secret prayer room overlooking uh, the high window like Daniel had. There's no anticipation. For, no, no, there's just Mordecai's plan of, shh, don't let anybody know and we'll live. Maybe because they're not confident that he's going to show up. I don't know what I want Esther to do. Isaiah chapter 30 verse 1 talks about this. He says, Oh, stubborn children who carry out a plan but not mine and who make an alliance but not of my spirit that may add sin to sin. You see, Esther and Mordecai come up with a plan, but it ain't God's plan. God told his people how to live, and they're disobeying. Oh, sometimes a win in the world isn't a win for the kingdom. Don't, don't mistake that. Sometimes it's a significant loss. When the world approves you by being disobedient to what is true, that's not a win for the kingdom, even if you do get to live for another day. Esther makes an alliance, but not with God's spirit. There's only three alternatives that really, I mean, she's taken against her own will. That's sure. But is Esther really supposed to tell Haggai on her first day when she gets there? Is this what she's supposed to say? You know, I've looked over the menu. I'm not allowed to eat any of that pork and seafoods. And I ain't eating that. Well, you have to eat it. It's part of the nutrition plan to make you beautiful. I ain't eating it. I don't eat that. I'm not allowed to eat it. Here's a list of my dietary preferences. I mean, how's that going to go, right? 
when Esther's big night comes. I mean, are you really supposed to tell the king when you walk into the bedroom chamber, your majesty, I know that you've spent tons of money and resources on making me beautiful, and it has worked. (laughs) I am stunning. Uh, But I'm saving myself for marriage according to the scripture. So if you don't mind, let's just spend the night on this gold couch and talk to each other for the night and get to know each other a little better. Listen, that maybe. Or maybe if he even goes along with the first two things, you get to this third thing when he says, you know what? I love you. I love, who, I love you for who you are. I love your character. I love your personality. I love your heart. I want you to be my wife. And she says, I am very flattered. But I am not marrying an uncircumcised Gentile. It's forbidden in my book. I don't know. I mean, what is she supposed to do? I can tell you how, in every one of those instances, how it ends for Esther. According to our plan. According to Ahasuerus' plan. Those unwillingnesses to compromise equals death. Immediate, instantaneous death. When he finds out she's a Jew, death. Unless God has a plan. That's the only way that that makes sense. Because you know what happens when you don't bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's God? You get thrown into the lion's den. That's what happens. Death. Instant death. Unless God has a plan. You know what happens when you don't bow down to the God? You get thrown into the fiery furnace seven times hotter than usual. And you know what happens? Instantaneous death. Unless the fourth man is in there with you as well. And in each case, when there was a refusal to compromise in the world that God's people were called to live in, there was a testimony about, whoa, there is no God but Jehovah. Think about how many times Nebuchadnezzar had to say that because of the refusal to compromise. But Xerxes never says it because Xerxes doesn't see his glory displayed because God's people are compromisers. No, we don't win here. This is a loss. I can't really blame Esther. I see it all around us today. Esther has to choose between putting God first and opening herself up to whatever suffering comes as a result or concealing her identity and becoming the next Vashti. You know, when Daniel, if God didn't show up, Daniel, Daniel's refusal to compromise, just two generations ago, Daniel's refusal to compromise would have left him undone if God didn't show up. There was great risk to suffering. If God didn't show up. But there's better things than being the queen of Persia.
We live in that world today. And instead of compromising, he's calling us to live in utter dependence upon him. That's what God is calling us to in Persia today. And we keep thinking, well, if we just compromise, we'll just get through another day. Our time will come. Let's just keep getting through another day. And we're not giving God an opportunity to show up and to testify because we keep coming up with our plan, following our plan. But listen, this book is called Esther because God refuses to give up on compromisers. It's the whole reason the book's left for us. It's because God keeps chasing the compromisers. God keeps giving room for them. And, and later, we'll get to it, but Mordecai finally comes to himself and says, who knows but such a time as this, that we've been brought to this place. He never mentions God, but he understands that there's something else at play here. And Esther realizes that even her compromises brought her to a place of opportunity. And maybe that's where we are. Oh, I can't find that out for all of us. But I think each of us needs to find out the decisions that we've made. How can we leverage the world we're in right now? How can we finally stand for what we believe? How can we make a difference where we are? You're not disqualified because of your previous compromises. You're uniquely qualified for such a time as this. I think that's the story of Scripture. Over and over we find it. How God takes sinners, compromisers, failures. He loves them. He rescues them. And then bit by bit, He changes them to use them for His glory. That's what, that's what He did with Abraham when He lied about His wife being His sister twice. That's what he did with Moses when Moses murdered the Egyptian. That's what he did with David when he slept with another man's wife. That's what he did with Peter when Peter denied him multiple times. That's the story of Paul who made a living persecuting the church and then spent the rest of his life birthing them. Over and over you find compromisers. Esther's not the bad guy here. The surplanter is. The one who keeps bringing us off sides. The one who keeps tricking us to believe the temptation of security and comfort and just fit in, just get through the day. You know, Jesus was tempted. When he was in the wilderness with Satan, do you remember? When he was up there on that high mountain and Satan looked at him and he said, if you, will, if you really are the son of God, do this thing and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. I'll let you be the king of the world. He said, wait, that's not Satan's to give. Yes, it is. He is the prince of this world. Jesus, if you will compromise this one little thing, you can avoid all the suffering and get all the glory. But if you don't compromise, you'll get all the suffering and no glory. Jesus said, get away from me. You ain't going to tempt me. The word of God is clear. I will not compromise. Jesus spent his ministry uncompromisingly. Never once did he compromise the glory of his father for his own personal glory. 
and he came to the end. And if you didn't know the end of the story, you would say, I don't know when, but God's going to show up. I don't know when, but he's going to show up. Not in the garden, not when the soldiers come, not when he's flogged, not when he's beaten, not when the crown of thorns is put on his head, not when the nails go through his hands, not when the sword goes through his side. When is God going to show up? Three days from now, when it really matters. When it doesn't matter for this kingdom, it matters for another kingdom. And then Jesus took the victory that came from not compromising and he gave it to every compromiser. Isn't that powerful? I just want, I want to remind you, don't, don't drink the Kool-Aid of who you think you are. Because I'm telling you, if you value your own importance, you'll compromise it. You'll compromise You'll, 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 you'll look at the wrong things. You'll focus on the wrong things. You'll invest in the wrong things with your time. But if you will put Jesus Christ first in your life and walk in his victory instead of working to walk out your own plan, I'm telling you, when the time is right, he will either show up and he will vindicate you or he will vindicate you for all eternity. But there is no loss to those who refuse to compromise. And that's just the next lesson. There's many more to come. So I want to encourage you, if you're in this room this morning and you know that you're not as vocal, there may be people at work that you're like, well, I'm not allowed to talk about that. Oh, I'm not allowed to, I'm not allowed, I'm not allowed, I'm not allowed. Well, what, what would happen if I did? You know, it's time to put all that down. The world is desperate. They're desperate for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's taken us who are the least equipped to be his voice. And he's given us his voice. So I want to encourage you. How do you live in a world that values beauty, image, possession, power, prestige? How do you live in a world that doesn't value love, concern, compassion, care, prayer, serving, I'm going to ask you to stand with me, if you will. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. We've got to put our eyes on the right joy. We've got to put our hope in the right kingdom. And listen, one of the things that I'm not talking about right now is being angry on social media. That's not taking a stand. That's cowardly. Don't be a coward that's trying to stand up. As you go, as you are walking, as you are living, let people see Jesus in your words. Let them see Jesus in your giving. Let them see Jesus in your caring. Let them see Jesus in your praying. Let us see Jesus not in the way you look or the way you dress, but in the way you love, in the way you care. That's how the world will know that Jesus was sent from the Father, by how we love one another and how we remember who we are. 
That's how we take a stand. We not, may not be able to change politics. We may not be able to help the world strategize for a world that's corrupt anyway. We need to set our attention on a kingdom that does not fail. And that's where we need to put our hope and that's where we need to put our trust. That's how you live in a world is to pull people's eyes off the temporary and help them see the eternal. But the only way that we can do that is if we take our eyes off the temporary and look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus and his perfect work, his perfect life, his uncompromising character. And I just ask that you would remind us who is in us, who empowers us, and may we walk in that power. Lord, I suspect that it'll never be easier to stand than it is today. And one little compromise today, and we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt day after day after day, and we end up compromising a whole lot more than we intended to and a whole lot less than we think we have, or more than we think we have. And so I just ask, Lord, that you would help us to, to know who we are and whose we are and to live in that power. May we not be influenced by the decision that the world makes. And yes, we have to live here. But you have prepared us to live here in an uncompromising way so that we may see your power displayed in our trust and our obedience. So, Lord, we love you and we thank you for all that we have in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. This morning, if you're here and you identify, now be honest, I'm not labeling you, but if you identify this morning as a as someone who's quick to compromise, just conceal, hide, fit in. I'll tell you, it's not just a, it's not just a, a move to get you through one day or the other. It's sin. It's sin to claim to trust God and yet live as a Persian. So maybe today's the day of repentance. Lord, forgive me. Forgive us for not being the light we should have been on the front end. But Lord, if you can redeem our compromises, we give you freedom and permission to use them for your glory. Or maybe you're here this morning and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You know life has been filled with compromises. Why don't you put your hope in another kingdom? Put your hope in another hero. Esther cannot be your hero. Jesus Christ is the only qualified hero in the story. If you want somebody to pray with, I'm happy to pray with you. I'll, I'll meet you right down here and we can pray together as soon as the service is over. I'd love nothing more today than for us all to take a stand. Lord, we love you and we thank you for who you are, what you're doing in our life. And we thank you that even though we know that we're full of compromises, it has not disqualified us. And so I pray that you would help us to stand firm. Help us to recognize it and to put you first. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.